So I'm not saying that it's 100% necessary, but I think there would be a little less political dissidence if they brought back public executions. Uh, Artem, what are your thoughts on the matter? I'm totally fine with it if the, the punishment fits the crime. I mean, honestly, you're from Texas, so I, I, was, I think that would make perfect sense from where you're sitting at. If they like, if they just like decapitated someone in front of you, I mean, how much would that affect you that that badly? If the person killed like twelve people, uh, it would probably put a positive spin on my day. Like, nope, nope, no, nobody's gonna be stupid enough to do that again. Yeah, see, I, I, I think that, yeah, I think that that would be something that could uh, keep people in line. You know, that way. Okay, I push for harsher punishments, something longer and more painful. Like watching Georgia Tech play football? Hey. Uh, I was thinking more nerve damage wise. <laughs> okay, we What's the difference? <laughs> <laughs> we we took a dark turn to start the podcast. But hey everybody, welcome back to the Toe Meets Leather Podcast. I'm Logan. Here with me today our uh season picking champion. Uh he picked his games and he picked his nose. Tommy Keen, how's it going today, Tommy? Oh, uh, what? Uh, what? Yeah, you actually came in. Of the games we picked, you picked sixty-two percent of your games correctly. So you actually came out on top of all of us. Congratulations. That's not the part that confuses me. <laughs> Come on, don't lie, Tommy. We know you pick your nose. Oh, okay. Just staying quiet about it? All right. See, I see how it is. All right. I'm just going back and watching my favorite play of the bowl season on loop right now. Which would be the, let me guess, the flea flicker with Ohio? Yeah. All right. Perfect. I knew I got it down. And on the other end, we've got our good friend from Texas, Arnim. How you doing tonight, Arnim? About to watch uh, Vanderbilt put a beating on Rape State. Technically, Raylor. I don't know what you would call him. Baylor, Baylol. Yeah, Baylol sounds about right. I don't know. Honestly, I don't think about Baylor that much anymore. They've kind of stopped being relevant. They made a bowl game, unlike some other schools, and I think they're heading in the right direction. They just need to stop prostituting women <laughs> to players. Yeah. We are really taking a dark turn to start off this whole thing. So let's try and get back on topic. So to start off, I want to really quick talk about Paul Johnson. Obviously, he's retiring at Georgia Tech. He's been our coach for quite a while now since, uh, was it 2008 or 2009 that he started? I believe it was 2008. But he was a good guy. He obviously was probably one of the better coaches Georgia Tech has had. Uh, in a long time. I wish Andrew was here to do his righteous fury discussion, but he's not. So, Tommy, for a moment, I want to hand it over to you. You actually worked on Paul Johnson's coaching staff. Do you have a favorite memory of working with the guy? Um, To be clear, I didn't work on his staff. I was just on video there uh, as an undergrad assistant, so I wouldn't put it that high. But, uh, yeah, I just enjoyed – at practice, when you could see him work, I was able to to watch him on the field and seeing his interaction with the players and just seeing 
the level of respect that he was able to get from the players and how he could do everything without having a piece of paper in front of him. And he just seemed to know exactly what needed to be done on every play. He could look at all 11 guys and give them a comment after one play. And I just don't know how the human eye can catch all of what they can and have that level of understanding. So it was just really um, impressive to watch him him work and seeing how he could see things that I, I don't know how any human being could uh, understand or see on a single play with a single look without having notes to look back on or anything like that. It was fascinating. The guy kept it all in his head. He was a lot like a human supercomputer. Um, Artem, I know you personally don't have any ties directly to the program uh, other than us, but do you have any thoughts on uh, Johnson's retirement as far as what that means for college football or how that affects things in the future? I think we're going to talk a little bit about this later, but I think he's going to be one of these head coaches that's bored at home and comes back. Like Tommy said, he's a very talented and scrupulous guy. Sitting on a couch watching these games is not going to cut it for him. So I think uh, Paul Johnson's going to be back hopefully in a year, year and a half, um, two years, depending on how how quick somebody gets fired next year. Um, And uh, maybe at Navy. They're, They're not training well. But... You know, he's, he's a tough coach. Uh, it's going to be tough to follow up what he's done at Georgia Tech. Uh, I think to start this season, we had a, a podcast where we talked about technically he's the what, second or third winningest head coach at Georgia Tech in Georgia's history. Fourth. Is that right? Fourth. So I mean, that's hard to follow up for anybody, regardless of how good they are. So the guy that's going to come in, he's going to have to kind of keep the tone of what Paul Johnson has established and hopefully build on it instead of having to come in and rebuild big by brick, which some coaches want to do for whatever reason. And, and in some cases it makes sense. In this case, I think Paul Johnson set a good foundation. You just come in and build on what this dude did. But like I said, I, I don't think he stays retired for long. So Tommy, I know you weren't here last week, but we do want to talk about, I do want to give you the chance to talk about something uh, as far as what, uh, is it means to take over this position because Paul Johnson's been here for a while. We already touched on it. And I obviously he runs an interesting system in the veer where the coach taking over Jeff Collins in this particular situation is going to have an interesting time transitioning. I think most people think he's going to have an interesting time transitioning the offense because there's no offense quite like the veer option and he's going to have to transition players. He's going to have to figure out what to do at quarterback, how to run with tight end. And he's going to have some decisions to make um, with players transitioning on defense as well uh, in a lot of sense. It's it's Jeff. Anyway, uh, he's – why am I talking to you, Artem? Anyway, Tommy, I'll, I want to give you a chance to discuss that. What What is this going to look like? in the future for a uh, transition. Is it set up well, the decision by Paul Johnson to retire, is that a good idea to set up Georgia Tech for a bright future, or is this kind of a risky game given uh, the suddenness of his retirement? You know, it 
does feel kind of sudden as a fan and somebody who's on the outside. I have a feeling there were a lot of talks on the inside this year leading up. I, I think Paul Johnson and Todd Stansberry, the athletic director, have a pretty good relationship. You can just tell, like, the previous athletic director, when Mike Bobinski was there, the press releases and things like that just felt a little bit more contrived, and uh, they didn't reference each other as much as they do now, which makes me think that um, Todd Stansberry and Paul Johnson spoke a lot more often and we're a lot more on the same page of how they're going to carry the athletic association and the impacts that have on football and how they can benefit each other in moving forward. And I think that relationship is probably more important than necessarily who the coach is. Um, because with Johnson retiring, I'm sure there was a lot of talk ahead of time to where they could start doing their due diligence early. They could start looking at guys ahead of time and, building their short list um, before he even announced it so that they can hit the ground running. I, I think uh, Jeff was a great hire. Uh, I think the energy he's going to bring to the program, the fact that he was born in Georgia, so he knows has a, and can, has a connection to the area is really good. The only thing that is kind of troubling is when you run a team the way that Paul Johnson did with – the offense that he run being his bread and butter, butter, how he made his name, it's really, really hard to be able to just build straight on that if you're not going to go with the same offense, which considering we signed our first tight end in over a decade, uh, I think they're going to have a rough time having to retool the roster. But I, I think Artem's right as far as building a culture, building off of that, um, some of that will continue from the athletic director and from what Paul Johnson has built from academics and just the balance of being a student athlete. I think some of that can be built off of. So staying... tight ends are exciting. It's going to be a lot of fun. I still don't fully understand their purpose, but maybe one day. Well, you say that, but a lot of other teams don't understand the purpose of a fullback anymore. And that makes me sad. Do they? I mean, to be fair, we didn't really have true fullbacks either. No, they were B-backs. It's different, Tommy. Fullbacks uh, are fun, too. If you have a good one, they can just lay out a kid. Mm. Yeah, I think fullbacks are a lot more fun than B-backs. I don't know. The fullbacks, do they have a fullback in the shotgun formation? Is that allowed? Well, it's a pro-style yeah. system you go, you go into, though, right? So you can't have a fullback lineup to the right or left of the quarterback, kind of like a, a running back would. Yeah, but are they still technically called a fullback when they're in that? Mm -hmm. oh. You just I run the draw. And one of yeah, the fullback's going to be more of like the the player archetype than necessarily where he's standing on the field. Because fullbacks and running backs, depending on how many, which are players on the field are going to be, will determine what they're going to do. You can have a fullback who can run the ball and also be great in blocking, it's going to be a little bit different than a halfback that's more of a scat back that's really just a skill position and a wide receiver running back well, kind and then, of flex. And then that brings in the discussion, what's the difference between a halfback and a tailback? But and We could talk about this all day, but I feel like we're getting a little bit off topic. So to try and get back into it, there are a lot of coaches retiring this year and 
a lot of coaches that will probably be retiring in the near future given their age that kind of remind us of the Paul Johnson situation. So, Tommy, I want to start off and let you kind of guide the because you've done a little more research than I have, so guide the discussion on this one. But, you know, Bill Snyder retired this year. We've got some interesting uh, – we also had an interesting retirement at Ohio State. But why don't we start off with Bill Snyder, a guy who I think for Kansas State is a lot – he reminds you a lot of Bear Bryant. He's been there for so long, you're kind of hoping they'll bury him under the stadium – uh, because of how much he meant to that program. And I think a lot of people are kind of hoping that he will come back even after his retirement. But uh, what does that do to a program to see a living legend uh, retire? You know, for a program like Kansas State, obviously with Bill Snyder retiring, there's not going to be anyone who's going to be able to come in and really live up to that unless he just, you know, straights up starts winning 10 games a year for his first three years in a row. Um, it, there's going to be a little bit of a, a drop-off as far as the fan base. They're not going to be as forgiving. They're going to have a little bit higher expectations. I mean, granted, it's not like Kansas State's been Alabama recently where it's national title or bust. So, I mean, it's not like he's got to come in and win a national title like whoever follows Nick Saban's going to be expected to do. But still, I mean, a guy who's been there that long, I mean, just – Think about all the guys who have been fired or, or let go in that meantime. I mean, there's only, at this point, 11-ish guys, a, a dozen guys who have been at a program for more than a decade. So it's it's not easy to stay at a program for that long. Well, and it's very rare nowadays. Uh, I think, especially... Artem, you can kind of relate to this recently. There's kind of an expectation at a lot of these big-time programs where if you don't succeed, uh, the coach gets canned immediately, and they start looking for the next guy up. Um, Kind of like what Texas A&M did. Uh, We were, and Georgia did, in turn. We were really questioning the Jimbo Fisher hire, how sudden it was, and uh, given someone's performance, if he really deserved to get fired. But uh, results are results. Uh, do you have any feelings about uh, the difference between coaches who stick around or, and how that affects the program? So being a fan of A&M and having not won a – I think, oh, God, there's a new statistic that came out recently. All right. It's uh, the number of home conference wins someone had in his last four years is less than the number of home conference wins that Jimbo had in his first year. So that's why he got fired. I think a better example is kind of Auburn in their situation now. Um, they had Gus Malzahn. He came in, and after essentially a national championship coach who won the national championship with um, Cam Newton, went like 3-10 and tw- 10 next the year afterwards, that guy gets canned. They bring in Gus Malzahn. He does a little bit better and has a 13-year or a 12-13 win year. And then the year afterward, he tanks again. So it's kind of those programs that are competing with programs like Alabama. I, I think even in Alabama's case, if um, if Saban's you know has two losses in the year, they're going to start talking about replacing him. Um, it, it's an easy conversation 
topic to get into that because schools get really full of themselves when they've had a lot of success. Another good example, Florida State. Um, they lost Jimbo this year because he got hired away, and their you know, response was, fuck that, we don't need him. We're Florida State. And <laughs> this season, I don't think they might have bowl game. You know, another interesting thing talking about that is when he left, he had been at Florida State over a decade. If Jimbo Fisher was still at Florida State today, he would be, you know, one of the top 15 most tenured coaches anywhere as a head coach at the program. Not to mention he had been an offensive coordinator and QB coach for a couple years before that. And uh, talk about following a legend. You know, Yeah, absolutely. He, came in and took over after a legend in Bobby Bowden and actually ended up succeeding and doing really well there. So, I mean, that that's why I was so surprised about it is that everything pointed to this is where the school he should have retired at. But um, I think it's interesting you said, say that. there's big interest. There's obviously deeper issues. Yeah, and, you know, some people can argue that he introduced those issues and he left kind of leaving that there. Um, but it, it's, I think any program is vulnerable. I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens with when Nick Saban retires and what that does to Alabama. You know, um, unless they knock it out of the park with uh, the Clemson guy, Dabo, I don't think they're going to have, I think they're going to have some very heavy drop-off. They're seeing heavy drop-off now when they don't make a, a national championship. They don't sign as good a class. Right now they have the conversation where they can say, we've been back to the college football playoff five times, on the, all five times that it's existed. But you can only say that so long, and kids are, with this transfer portal thing, kids, kids are transferring in and out. I think it's going to have huge impact on coaches and as well as schools. I don't think reputation in your coach is going to be the, the thing for much longer as it has been in the past where the the big schools have just dominated. Well, and I think for me, it's what I'm seeing out of this is the length that these big-time programs are willing to go to to continue having the success they've had. I mean, obviously with Texas A&M, it was a money thing. They shelled out a ton of money because they got tired of someone real fast. You know, it doesn't matter uh, – if you're getting nine win seasons every year, we expect better. We want to compete. You know, Georgia's kind of got the same mentality. But then you look at what's going on at Ohio State right now with Urban Meyer, where people were actively turning a blind eye to some very questionable ethics violations that were going on inside the organization in my mind, purely because they thought Urban Meyer was a winner and he could get them back to the college football playoff. And now, obviously, he's stepping down, and I can only assume this is because he was asked to step down. And I don't know how that's going to affect him coaching in the future, but, uh, you know, he, he's obviously... That whole thing obviously puts you in a bad way looking from the inside out. Uh, do we – it's kind of fascinating. You see this – a lot of these smaller – a lot of the coaches, though, that have stuck around longer, they're at smaller programs, you know. Frank Solich at Ohio, you know, uh, Gary Patterson at TCU. So, teams, you know, go ahead. I, I think you're starting to hit on it, and I, 
Logan, and I, I, what I really wanted to talk about with this is I think we're going to start seeing a, a new divide in programs moving forward. I think your your giant big programs with uh, seemingly unlimited resources, you know, your Alabamas, your A and M's, your Ohio States, your Michigans, what they're going to look for in a coach and how they're going to treat their coaches is going to be very different than a lot of your programs that are going to be mid-tier. And I think the programs that are, are really starting to figure out how you can live in that balance of, you know, we don't have unlimited resources to spend on football, but at the same time, we want to be competitive at one of the highest levels, is when you look at TCU, Oklahoma State, Iowa, Utah, Northwestern, I mean, the programs I just named have all had their coach since 2006. You know, they've had at, at Iowa, Kirk Ferentz has been there since 1999 as the head coach. Um, and if you look at Kyle Whittingham at Utah, he was, before he was the head coach there, he came on uh, as a defensive line coach in 1994 and hasn't left yet. And if you look at what those programs do year in and year out, yeah, maybe they're not competing for the playoff. Um, or necessarily always in the hunt for their conference playoff. Like these big programs are always talked about preseason and everything. But I think the programs consistently always either perform well or they rebound fairly quickly after a subpar season. Another great example is Duke. I mean, David Cutcliffe was hired in 2008 at the same time that Dabo Sweeney and Paul Johnson was hired. All three of those guys came in at the same time. And I would argue that, you know, he's done almost as much for Duke as Dabo has for Clemson since he's been there. Granted, Clemson has poured a lot more money into their athletics, and they always will just because of what their program is and how their focus is. But I, I, I would argue that he's David Cutcliffe and what he's been able to do at Duke is incredibly impressive. And the level of sustained success he's been able to have. Well, you can see it really in the way that he's turned that program around. It is interesting to me, Artem, that you've kind of got the opposite view coming from a big time program, but what are your thoughts on those comments? Uh, I think it's all changing. And I think it's the people in the, the back office. That's the biggest reason, right? I think we've moved away from universities that, you come in as a professor and all you want to do is just have tenure, right? It's just a metaphor here. Uh, I think people are now to the point where they know what can be done. And some of those guys that kind of want that challenge, they're no longer at those big program programs. Like they would have been sitting for, you know, 40, 50 years. These athletic directors that are hired, they're no longer tenured. They're also kind of being held up, accountable for these things and I think in the past I think the bowl game was kind of the biggest part of um, competing against other conferences you, you didn't really play out of conference a lot unless you were an independent school like Notre Dame now we're at a point where you have the college football playoff and you know multiple teams can, can get in it, it's not a two-team thing anymore and I think as that kind of expands and you know it looks like we're going to go to an 18 playoff in the next couple of years I think you're going to have actually less patience with coaches. And part of that comes with less patience for athletic directors. 
schools that are not big schools. I, I, I mean, A&M is a big school, but I wouldn't say that A&M is a blue blood school by any point at all. Uh, it's especially in terms of football. We have a rich historic history, but uh, I wouldn't say there's been long progressive stretches of winning under more than one coach. We've had a coach come in. He's won a bunch of games. He's established that culture. Uh, after him, we usually had a bad coach because Alabama got him. Bear Bryant was at A&M, then he left Alabama. Um, just one example. So I think it's getting to the point where these athletic directors are leaving those conferences or leaving those schools that they've been at. And, and A&M is an example of that. Scott Woodward uh, came here a year before Jimbo, and they're setting expectations because they have expectations. They want a challenge of building up a school, building up a program, and they're saying – I've done this at this other school. I was there. Here's how you do it. If you do it this way, not only are you going to become potentially a blue blood program and you're going to win a lot, you're going to make a a hell of a lot of money. So you can invest money now, but progressively over the next 10 years, I will make this program money. Here's what I need. Sign on the bottom line that you boosters will not interfere and will fund me. And I think that's changing the college football landscape. Jimbo coming to A&M was part of a change of college football landscape. Um, Les Miles going to Kansas, all these coaches kind of coming back out of retirement and not necessarily sticking around for long periods of time at the schools and moving somewhere else for a challenge. I think it's changing the whole landscape of college football. Okay. And I do just want to clarify that I wasn't calling A&M blue blood in the sense of winning. I was talking more about the money. And while I completely agree with you that, you know, you spend a lot of money, you can make it back. And you see that at the big programs right now as far as money and resources available and with the TV contracts that are becoming more and more absurd every year, it seems like. I think when you start looking at the programs that they don't have the booster access that some of these other giant schools do, like an Iowa or a TCU or an Oklahoma State, I think when you look at those programs and what they've been able to do with sustained, consistent success in the sense of going to a bowl game, in the sense of competing for conference titles on a fairly regular, not necessarily every year, but a fairly regular basis, and bouncing back from rough years very quickly, I I think you're just starting to see kind of tiers develop between programs as far as those have figured out how to compete with less money and less resources available to them compared to the programs that seem to have that rich history, those boosters with incredibly deep pockets that they're willing to upend and open up and uh, able to pay coaches literally anything they want. And I think another interesting thing to look at is when you look at a school like Tennessee, which has an incredible history and what they've been able to do uh, as far as winning, who have very deep alumni pockets, yet they can't seem to put anything together right now. Um, And when you saw Mike Gundy, the rumors of him going to Tennessee and him apparently turning down an offer to go there, I think that just starts to show you that you can build something with a guy if you keep him for a very long time that is a level of success that's achievable for a program that doesn't have 
incredible resources like the top programs do. Well, and I think it is also interesting where going back to Paul Johnson, we had him for a while and we didn't necessarily build over time to something great. We had our up years and our down years, but that became kind of a ride in and of itself where you kind of feel a connectivity after a while to the coach after he's been there for so long that it's kind of like, yeah, he's in this with us. Uh, he's part of, uh, he's part of the culture just as much as any of, uh, anything else of the traditions and the activities that we do at our school. Um, he's been, he, he's in there with the trenches with us because he's been around for so long. So I do feel like part of that kind of gets lost at some of these big programs. Tennessee is a great example where Tennessee, it's just like, well, we didn't like him for two years, so we fire him anyway and go to another bad coach is what it feels like every year. But yeah, I mean, at these programs like Ohio, um, like uh, like uh, Oklahoma State, like TCU, these coaches have been around for so long. They've kind of became become just as much of a staple as the of the program as the mascots are. It's fascinating. I mean, talk about Mark D'Antonio at Michigan State. I mean, could you imagine him coaching anywhere else or anybody else coaching that program? It feels like he's been there forever. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to mistake other. Whenever he retires, I'm going to keep mistaking people for him uh, at that program. Bill Snyder is a great one because I don't think he'll ever think because uh, I'm never going to be able to think of anybody else at that position. Oh, <laughs> Gary Anderson's a weird one. I, I still don't. I'm still trying to wrap my head around that one where he left for Wisconsin and then still somehow found a way back to Utah State. I'm like, what what tie does he must have to that athletic director? I don't know. Uh, anyway, so. I don't want to spend all day on this conversation. We do have some other topics to get to, but Tommy, and I'm going to let you have your last thoughts on the subject matter. Uh, I guess coaches retirements in general and Paul Johnson specifically, do you got any last thoughts on the, uh, on the subject? Yeah, I've got two very last thoughts. First off, uh, I, Paul Johnson should go to the college football hall of fame. Um, you ask anybody who kind of coached against him on a regular basis, like, Bud Foster and Frank Beamer at Virginia Tech or David Cutcliffe, they all say the same thing and what he's done for college football. There's a bunch of guys out there who have done similar things to the offensive landscape, like Mike Leach at Washington State, and uh, the tree that's come from him is pretty similar. Um, so I, I hope that happens in three years. I also hope that Arnhem's wrong, that maybe he goes into TV or something. I hope he doesn't come back to coaching because I think he's kind of – lost the love for it that he used to have um but i think he would be great in the uh box and i would love to hear him comment on games every saturday that would be a lot of fun and the second piece i have is that if you look at navy and ken niamatololo who is from the same tree i think navy is setting themselves up for this long-term success as well their offensive coordinator ivan jasper actually played quarterback for paul johnson at navy um and it's been the quarterback's coach and offensive coordinator there for a couple years now so i think they're basically grooming him to take over for when nia montalolo retires and keep that consistency there um and a guy who's 
basically going to be at one program until he retires type situation. And I really hope that works out. And I really hope that becomes a, a blueprint and a framework for other programs to follow. Gotcha. Artem, uh, your last thoughts. He was a good coach. Um, I think it's a good time for him to move on because I think he got a little complacent. It happens after a while and expectations kind of flutter back and forth. So I think it's it's good to get uh, a new guy in there with a little bit more enthusiasm and kind of more hype going into the program. Um, I think it's a good move, but only time will tell. It's uh, all the best to Paul, though. Okay, fair enough. All right. I will miss him, that's for sure, but uh, I do think it was a very nice gesture of him to, as he lost interest, to kind of step out and give us the opportunity to not have to cut him from the program itself. So he was a good coach in every every facet of the game and management. Uh, he will be missed. All right. Next up, uh, let's go ahead and just get into our favorite bowl game discussion of the year so far. I mean, we've still got quite a few coming into New Year's Eve, but right now we've had quite a few exciting games. I want you all to talk about what your favorites were and why they uh, resonated with you. So, Tommy, I think you've kind of got an interesting choice in my mind because if you're sticking with the game we talked about beforehand, it wasn't really a close game at all. Uh, what's, What's your favorite bowl game so far, Tommy? Okay, if you didn't watch the Ohio-San Diego State game, or if you turned it off or didn't pay attention because it was 27-0 as a final score, go back and watch the game. Even though they were up 17 to nothing at halftime, San Diego State was still flying around on defense, and guys were laying out to make tackles. There was a lot of third-down conversions that Ohio had to make to keep drives around, and deep third-downs and breaking tackles to get there. San Diego State, you know, they only gave up 10 points on defense in the second half. So go back and watch that game. It was a lot of fun. Ohio pulled out all the tricks. They ran one of the greatest flea flickers I've ever seen. It, I think it took like seven seconds to finally throw the ball downfield, which is a long time for a play. Um, but that's just because everybody sold it so well. Uh, it, it was a lot of fun to watch. It was just good. In my opinion, and I loved every second of it. Okay, uh, it's a, again, it's an interesting choice because it was a twenty-seven point blowout. But I, I love my Bobcats coming out and like really showing that they deserve to be there in that game. Um, Artem, what's what's been your bowl matchup highlight? Because I know you were excited to watch every single bowl game last time we talked, so you must have been watching a lot of them. I have watched a lot of half a bowl games based on the number of blowouts there's been. Falling asleep during a couple. Uh, I'd say out of my... I really enjoyed the Cal-TCU game. Um, mostly just because the defenses were playing so well. Kind of like Tommy said, both teams are flying around on defense even though the offense couldn't get anything going. And it was just it was interesting to watch how besides all the interceptions quarterbacks getting hurt fourth fifth stringers coming out kind of both teams had to find a way to win in a situation where they had a backup come in in the game but before that they had a backup start the game so the backup to a backup was playing to kind of to finish it up it's uh 
it, it was an interesting game to watch because of all the turnovers, the defense flying around. Even though the offense couldn't get anything going, the defense didn't give up and kept playing like that the whole game. And it actually went to overtime, and it took an overtime field goal to win it. There was a really interesting moment uh, at the very end of the game, though, where TCU got the ball in like, their 10-yard line, and you're like, all right, this is over. There's no way in two minutes this team that couldn't get an offense going is going to drive down to kick a field goal to end the game. But weirdly enough, they bust out a running back play, and he goes for 40, 50 yards. Uh, if essentially, they end up kind of like in the situation we talked about, the cast, you know, 130, 120 left on the clock. They still have all their timeouts, and they're just within the 25 driving. They get it to like the 20 or something, and they set to kick. Uh, and like in any situation, uh, they have two kickers who <laughs> neither is over 80% accuracy on the season. So they decide to go for the freshman kicker who's 50% accuracy, and they trot him out there. And they're like, all right, you're going to kick this field goal. Um, they line up. It's a 40-something yarder, and he shanks it. She, he, uh, I think they first call a timeout to try to ice him. And uh, the coaches are like, all right, all right, come back, come back. And they, they're like, all right, uh, you know, actually we're going to send the other kicker, the, the higher percentage kicker out. And then they change their mind halfway through him running on the field and they send <laughs> the freshman back out. And then she shank, he shanks it. And that's where the game went to overtime. I was like, this is ridiculous after nine turnovers. Um, but it was just interesting to watch because both teams really wanted to win and both teams really wanted to be there. And I feel like that hasn't been present in all the bowl games we've watched this season. Um, unfortunately, that's how I felt about Georgia Tech in their bowl game against Minnesota. I think Minnesota definitely wanted to be there. And Georgia Tech was kind of, for a coach who's retiring, has been there for a long time, the players didn't really play to honor him, um, yeah. in my opinion. It's almost like they... This is, I, I try not to talk about Georgia Tech doing bad things, but it's kind of hard not to. It's kind of like they went out there just expecting to be handed a win because he was retiring. Because it seemed like nobody out there really felt like putting in any effort. Uh, I don't know. Tommy, again, you know more about the offense and everything. Did you see anything in particular that made you feel otherwise, or was it just nobody showed up off the bus? I mean, I think it was a combination of the players didn't do what they were supposed to. They didn't execute. Um, Minnesota came out wanting to play, and, you know, it was in Detroit. So who really wants to be in Detroit for Christmas? It just That's such a shitty place, and I don't think they should get the city should get a bowl game anymore. Also, um, that being said, Minnesota played well. I mean, their running backs came out, and they wanted to win the game, and they won the game, so... Also, I believe you had something to say about the refs. Do you want to take a moment? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I will say is one of the worst officiated games I've ever seen. And granted, if the officiating was perfect, Minnesota still would have won that game by the same score. Like, it, it didn't really impact it because it was so lopsided. But, I mean, if you go back and watch the game, the best summary is there was a catch by Minnesota that was ruled out of bounds at the third-yard line, and then they went back and reviewed it. But if you look at it, his one foot, he had the toe that was in bounds when he made the catch, and it was the only foot on the ground. And then they ruled that he went out of bounds, but his next step was well within the line, or well within play. So if you go back and look at it, the only two options are it's either incomplete because that 
toe that was on the ground when he made the catch, when the heel came down, it touched the sideline. Thus, he's out of bounds with his one foot, so it has to be incomplete. Or he was in bounds and it was a touchdown. They took a 10-minute review and ruled that, oh, the play, the call in the field stands, which is literally impossible with the rules of the game. So, I mean, it's just, you know, 14 guys are out there. I mean, no other sport has that many officials, that many sets of eyes that can look at it. And to mess it up that bad, like, I mean, Little League has better officiating than this, and those guys may or may not even get paid sometimes. Getting off the, the referee rant before uh, Tommy's soccer league starts listening to our cast, uh, I'll go back to the Bulls. I think my really favorite one, aside from the shit show that California and TCU was, was Army in Houston. You know, for a city that has that much football to recruit from, Houston really shit the bed against uh, nothing against Army, but those guys have to stay a certain size to be able to qualify for the military, and they put a whooping on those Houston boys. Well, I think Army proved... I've been following Army all year. I mean, I went to the Army-Navy game. I went to their first game against Duke. Army proved they wanted to be there really badly, and they just absolutely dominated. Uh, nothing against Houston, but they – I don't know that you can say it was Houston not showing up. I think Army just was like clearly they wanted it more, and they wanted 100%. They wanted their first 11-win uh, season. Well, wait, was it 11 or 10? It was 11. They first 11-win season – in history, and it was a big deal for them. I'm, Shoot, I'm isn't y'all's like highest scoring uh, game in history? The also the the highest scoring game in all of college football is like two hundred twenty nine to zero. Yeah, uh, twenty six, yeah. I think. Yeah, so Houston didn't give a shit about the bowl game. They lost seventy to fourteen. How much little or shit do you have to give to lose twenty nine, two hundred twenty nine, or whatever to zero? <laughs> also, on that note. Props to UAB for getting an 11-win season only a couple of years after their administration shut them down and tried to end football altogether. Um, so coming out, winning 37-13 to in their bowl game, that's awesome for them. 11-win season, well-deserved. Go Blazers. UAB got a little bit of help from the administration, though. They got a couple guys on that roster there, six, seven years removed from high school. They got a couple extra years to their... Eligibility. Eh, yeah, a little bit, but hey, it's still pretty impressive to come back after not existing for two years and just suddenly sure. have an 11 win season. Yeah, we'll call it a, a, a wash, a net wash on that. <laughs> but really quick, uh, before we get into our final topic, I want to talk about my favorite bowl game. Uh, came as a surprise to me and I think everybody else Memphis versus Wake Forest. I was expecting Memphis to kind of blow them out. And in the first half, it looked like uh, Memphis was going to just destroy Wake Forest. But then Wake Forest came out in the second half. Their defense just shut Memphis down, and it was a really impressive game. Uh, Wake Forest tied the game back up, and then in the last probably four minutes, there were two drives by both teams to go all the way down the field back and forth to get the lead, then get the lead. Uh, Finally... Uh, ended with a big drive by Memphis. They drive all the way down to the 15-yard line. I swear I'm not going to turn this into a rant, but uh, for whatever reason, they had about 
Uh, a minute, a minute third, 20 or something left in the game, and they're on the 15. They decide, okay, we're just going to go for the field goal. I'm like, okay, that's a little strange. Uh, and, uh, but they decide to go for the field goal. They run it up the middle, basically at the line, just let the ball die. Uh, bring out the field goal kicker. So Wake Forest freezes him on the first time out. The second time, uh, he kicks it anyway, he makes it. Second time, his O-lineman false starts. He kicks it anyway and he makes it, but they move it back five yards. This time, the kicker shanks it and misses it. And I feel bad for the kicker because that shouldn't have been on him. The coach should have gone for it. We've talked about this before. Coach should have gone for the win, get a touchdown. With a minute left on the 15-yard line, come on. But uh, it is what it is. That was a really insane game to watch from what I was expecting to just be a blowout from the first from the start. So, um, I that said, there's a lot of still there's a still lot still left to be played. I'm kind of hoping the Texas A&M NC State game turns out to be pretty exciting, but we won't know until that happens. Uh, we got two two defensive starters out of that game. They have their offensive coordinator out, top wide receiver out, and their top linebacker out. So. It might turn into a shootout with all those players missing that have been playing all year. Yeah, I'm actually looking forward to it. It should be pretty exciting. Uh, Speaking of excitement, we've got our playoff discussion. So we kind of covered who we expect to win these playoff games, these upcoming playoff games last week. Pretty, Artem and I are pretty on lock for it being Clemson and Alabama. Tommy, I don't know your thoughts, but I assume it's something similar. Yeah, I mean, even with all the nonsense going around about Clemson players being out, I, uh, I Notre Dame absolutely deserves to be in this game going 12-0. and I just don't, like, I've never been sold on Brian Kelly. I've never been sold on his coaching. I don't think that when Notre Dame goes up against a team with the same talent that they do, that's much better coached, that they're going to stand a chance. So I quest, I guess my question becomes in this case, what does what do these teams have to do, Oklahoma and Notre Dame, to actually win their matchups? I think Oklahoma actually has a more obvious option where they've kind of just got to shut down the quarterback, kind of follow up on what Georgia did in the SEC championship. They've got to score consistently. Uh, and they've got to shut down the opponent's quarterback because really it's the quarterback play that's going to determine the game. Uh, I didn't see a lot of that from Alabama's running backs in the championship, so they kind of put it on the quarterback and forced him to win. But, uh, Artem, you were watching that game pretty closely. Uh, what are your thoughts? Does Also, I think you understand Oklahoma better than I do, so what are your thoughts as far as what Oklahoma needs to do? From what I've seen from Oklahoma – their defense hasn't really developed all season uh, in the sense that their guys actually look worse than when the season started, and I think that's why their defense coordinator got uh, fired in October. I think it's going to be worst-case scenario for them if uh, Tua comes out and they have to play against uh, uh, Jalen Hurt. Why did I just say Jalen Hurt? What's his name? Yeah, it's Jalen Hurts. Oh, that's, that's weird. I, I got the... Vanderbilt Baylor game on right now, and there's a Jalen Hurd on the sidelines so that tripped me up. Um, but I think that would be worst case scenario for them, honestly. I, I think Alabama has 
a lot more talent up front as far as offensive and defensive line. Uh, I think if they're forced to play Jalen Hurts, I think it's going to be more of a run-type game, and the backs that Alabama has are just going to run all over Oklahoma. Uh, there was the, the Cotton Bowl where Oklahoma did beat Alabama. Um, I believe it was two or three years ago when uh, um must have been before the playoff or yeah um so more than that but uh i think that time oklahoma did beat alabama and the case was that they threw all over them i don't think they'll be able to do that in this game even though alabama does have some uh young secondary i think it's gonna be really easy for them to control the clock and run all over them um that that defense is when you have announcers coming out on TV and publicly saying how much of a garbage dumpster fire that defense is, that's when you know that. Uh, and I, I'm with Tommy on the Clemson-Notre uh, Dame game, honestly. Uh, they have one of their top four first-round defensive linemen picks sitting out. <laughs> that's not going to change that, the fact that they're gonna run all, uh, their defensive line is going to eat up uh, Ian Book or whoever is in the backfield and not give them any time to throw. So I, I think that defensive line is going to make the, the difference in the Notre Dame-Clemson game. And whoever the Notre Dame quarterback is at the end of that game, whether Ian Book gets hurt or not, um, won't matter. Well, I guess for Alabama going into that game, I think your mentality is the same one that Army took against Oklahoma earlier in the year, which is if you can control the clock, if you've got 50 minutes plus of possession – then there's no way that Oklahoma is going to be able to challenge you. For Oklahoma, I don't know that there is a clear way, I guess because they're just used to winning shootouts, and I don't think Bama's going to be in that position. And honestly, I think Bama would be better off playing Jalen Hurts instead of risking Tua in the game at all. Just put Hurts in there and let him run clock all game, and I think that would be the better way to go about it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think Oklahoma's going to try and stack the box. I think they're going to try and uh, force Alabama to throw the ball. But I don't – their defense hasn't shown me that they're going to be capable of, of doing – of succeeding at it, rather. Tommy, what are your thoughts? Um, I think the key for Oklahoma is every drive on offense, what they do. I, I think you know their defense is going to – Emerge points. I think you know their offense is capable of scoring a lot of points, even against the best defense um, there is, at which Alabama statistically isn't, um, even though we know they're an elite defense and one of the best out there. I think the key to Oklahoma is each offensive drive, every time you touch the ball, what are you doing? Make sure you get the most out of it. It's not necessarily about, you know, up tempo or controlling the clock or anything like that. I think it all comes down to possessions and, you know, one turnover or getting a field goal versus a touchdown could be the difference in this game because I mean, this game could end up, you know, 70 to 67 at the end of it. I I think that would be pretty crazy, but yeah, I, I suppose that's a possibility. The one that I struggle with is, I guess it's a lack of understanding of what Notre Dame does. Uh, Notre Dame is kind of just decent at everything. I don't even want to say good because I don't. I think they played one really good game this year, and that was against Michigan. Uh, but I don't really know what to make of them because Clemson's defense is just really good, even with them missing players. 
I guess the best strategy is to try and shut down Clemson's offense. I I don't know. I can only make vague guesses. I mean, Artem, you've already touched on it, but do you see any real strategy for how Notre Dame can approach this game? Yeah, I would keep the ball out of their quarterback's hands, hand it out to the running back as much as possible. Um, any defensive line, whether talented or not, they're going to make mistakes if they're tired. So I would run the ball, run a lot of play auction off of that, get them tired, <clears throat> excuse me, get them tired, um, get them on long drives, whether it's four, five, six, seven, eight minutes, control the clock, and kind of like Tommy said, make the best of the play. Don't make something happen. You, you don't instead make a mistake against them, uh, which will then make their job easier because then they're off the field. So I would run the ball as much as possible, play action, keep that defense on the field as long as possible, and keep the ball out of the quarterback's hands to avoid mistakes. Well, I guess there is the Syracuse game that we can base that off of, and you could consider running like a West Coast offense like they did in that matchup with a lot of screens, a lot of running backs out of the backfield, uh, short passes that were kind of successful on the off on the uh, defense where it just it was short it was um, kind of like a cut in kind of offense but it was effective at keeping the defense on the field and dragging out possessions. Uh, Tommy, I'm gonna turn it over to you. I'm hoping you've got something that I'm, I'm missing out on because I just don't see a way that uh, Clemson's gonna lose this game. Yeah, you know, there's a couple ways. One is if Clemson comes out and decides not to play, you know, it, they're they're going to lose this game. It's not like they're that much better than Notre Dame head and shoulders across the board that they can just come out and be lackadaisical and win this game. Notre Dame's not going to be a pushover team. But from Notre Dame's perspective, there's a lot of things they can do on offense. You know, Clemson's defense really rests on their defensive line play. And you can do a lot of things to slow down or get around an offensive line. You can run a lot of screens. Like Artem said, you run the ball and then play action, which can get them to bite. If you start running out of the gun a little bit more, it gives you that extra, you know, second to half a second uh, of time to be able to make decisions and keep the ball out of those long arm reaches of them i think notre dame's receivers can match up very well with the secondary of clemson if they can get enough time for ian book to be able to make the plays and if they start running shorter routes um and faster developing plays rather than looking for necessarily those slow developing deep plays um i I think they have a pretty good shot on that side of the ball on the other side of the ball um the key to it is trevor lawrence is still a freshman um, he's still young. He's going to make mistakes. So, you know, when you do get beat, just make sure you're able to recover. And when you do have an opportunity to take advantage of even just, you know, sacking the guy or knocking down a pass, like those type of things are what will make the difference for them. So just kind of staying disciplined on defense, taking what's given to you and on offense, making sure you're going deep in the playbook um, and, running fast developing plays that kind of spread out the field um, and take advantage of the skilled players that you do have in mostly wide receivers on Notre Dame. I think they'll have a a pretty good chance there. It should be an interesting game to to watch. I think honestly the Alabama Oklahoma game excites me more because I think that 
A lot of people are hoping to see a 70-63 game, as Tommy pointed out. But realistically, I think the Notre Dame matchup could be quite exciting, uh, depending on how things played out. And, of course, Tommy out here showing off what made him such a great uh, college game picker earlier in the year uh, with all this deep game knowledge. But I think that's going to do it for us here uh, on the cast. Thanks, as always, to all our listeners for tuning in. Uh, guys, do you got anything that you need to shout out real fast? Uh, uh, down with Oklahoma and uh, be the hell of North Carolina State. Hot take, Texas A&M NC State is going to be the best or second best bowl game left. Um, if it's not the best bowl game left to watch, then I bet LSU-UCF is. Ooh, actually, yeah, LSU UCF. I, I'm I'm hungry for that matchup. <laughs> it's gonna be a good one. <laughs> also, I really wish I could watch the Sugar Bowl with Artem. I don't know if I'm gonna watch it, but uh, yeah. Did you see DeAndre Baker for Georgia's already sitting out? Piece of crap. Yeah, what do you expect? Yeah, it's Georgia. It's like the two shittiest teams in the country in the shit slinger bowl. That's what they should call it. The shit slinger sugar bowl, the all state shit slinger bowl. Yeah, am I am I allowed to cheer for Texas? Is that is that a thing I'm allowed to do? You're allowed to cheer for not. Uh, I'm not gonna say it on this podcast. I'm allowed to cheer for not Georgia. Oh, oh, here we go. Apparently, there's a. Uh, I guess it's called a polyjohn. Is the uh, portable toilet? That's what they should have called it. The polyjohn all state sugar bowl. I don't know. I'm, I'm still. I'm sad that the uh, what was it? The Mowers Bowl, the Super Mowers Bowl, didn't get the hype that it deserved. But this actually, this Vanderbilt Baylor game is turning out to be pretty exciting. So I'm gonna have to end the cast so I can watch it. Anyway, thanks again to all our listeners for tuning in. If you got any questions or comments, shoot us an email at tomeatleather at gmail And as always, check us out on Twitter at uh, tomeatsleather. Artem, were you about to say something? Nope. Okay. Well, then, uh, as always, have a good rest of your weekend and happy holidays. Good night, everybody.